Welcome to Thinking About Religion. I'm Dale Tuggy. When I'm talking to a general audience, if I introduce someone as a philosophy professor who is an atheist, I feel the need to clarify. Some people will expect a smug know-it-all, or someone who takes lazy potshots at religion, blaming it for all the world's ills, or someone who loudly opines that religion is suited only for idiots or savages, or someone who just enjoys pushing people's buttons and so gets a rise out of people by insulting their religions. Or maybe they will expect an evil professor just lying in wait to pounce upon students, verbally assaulting them so as to steal their precious faith from them. My guest today is Dr. Graham Oppie, and as you'll hear, he is a philosopher and an atheist, but he's none of those other things. Dr. Oppie is a professor of philosophy at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. His books include Naturalism and Religion, Atheism, the Basics, Arguing About Gods, Ontological Arguments and Belief in God, Describing Gods, an Investigation of Divine Attributes, The Best Argument Against God, The Routledge Handbook of Contemporary Philosophy of Religion, Philosophical Perspectives on Infinity, Reinventing Philosophy of Religion, A Companion to Atheism and Philosophy, and a five-volume set called The History of Western Philosophy of Religion. But he's here with us today to talk about his recent book entitled Atheism and Agnosticism. There's a lot of open discussion nowadays about atheism, particularly on the internet, in places like podcasts and blogs and social media. And I think you'll agree that Dr. Oppie has some very interesting things to add to the conversation. Dr. Oppie, welcome to Thinking About Religion. Thank you. Indian philosophers sometimes call Buddhists and Jains atheists because they don't believe in a god who's the unique, ultimate source of the cosmos. But on your definition of atheism, Dr. Oppie, these people wouldn't count as atheists. Can you explain why? It may be that there's a small number of Buddhists who would count as atheists on my definition. But the way that I think about atheists, they think that there aren't any gods at all. It's not just that they don't believe in a big god. They also don't think that there are any smaller gods. And so for Buddhists, some Buddhists think that the Buddha was a god. Some Buddhists think that there are other gods. Even though they don't think that there's someone in charge of the whole show, someone who's responsible for setting up the cycles of reincarnation and adjusting the karma score and all that kind of stuff, they're not going to count as atheists on my definition. And the same will be true about Jains as well. So what is your definition of a god in this discussion? I'm prepared to allow that there are kind of impersonal gods. So I'm going to think of this quite generally. So the gods are beings that sit at the top of power hierarchies and exercise their power. So the gods are the most powerful creatures, the creatures that have power over everything else. That's what it takes to be a god. Well, they've got to be supernatural. Yes, because otherwise you end up with, you know, Louis the Fourteenth turns out to be a god, perhaps, right. right? Or Donald Trump. Yeah, so there's at least those two parts of the definition that the gods are going to be supernatural, but they have power over everything in the natural world. 
But it might be that out there in the supernatural domain, there are hierarchies of beings and not all of them count as gods. There might be angels and mm-hmm. demons or divas or there's all kinds of things that turn up in different metaphysical views about what there is where you wouldn't count those things as gods. Even this way of thinking about it's not obviously exactly right. So, for example, in the Greek pantheon, it seems as though the fates had some sort of higher power than the gods. Mm. I don't know exactly what to say about that. The account that I've given is approximate and it's probably not exactly right. I find people all over the internet saying that atheism should be defined as just lack of belief in God. I'm pretty sure you disagree with that. And why do you think they're saying that? And why do you disagree? Why do they say it? Maybe because it makes the body of atheists much bigger than it would otherwise be, Mm. because it's a much more expansive definition. Maybe also because it doesn't sound quite as directly confronting to some people as the view that I think really is characteristic of atheism. So Mm. there's a couple of reasons. So... It's not that there's a kind of fact of the matter here. You can use words however you like. You just have to give consistent definitions to them and stick with them. Now, often we pretty much all agree on the definitions that we use of terms, and that makes communication possible. But there are lots of cases where terms are contested, and I've already indicated one of the reasons why the word atheism might be contested. But I think that it's A very useful way of drawing a distinction here is to think about the range of positions that we're trying to characterize. What are we talking about? I think that we're talking about attitudes towards the claim that there are gods. You might believe that there are gods. You might believe that there are no gods. You might suspend judgment on the question, having thought about it. You might have thought about it and decided that you're in no position to come down on either side. Or... A last category, which is quite important, but usually gets overlooked, you might be someone who's never considered the question. You haven't even acquired the concept of a God, perhaps because you can't. Mm -hmm. There are famous cases of people saying, for example, that infants are born atheists, but that doesn't seem right to me. They're born innocent. They just don't have the concept of God. It takes time for you to acquire it. And before you do, you don't have any attitude to the claim that there are gods. Mm-hmm. I think there's this fourfold classification, and we can apply this system of classification to almost any claim. Yeah, when people say atheism is just lack of belief in God, then you know every ham sandwich is an atheist now every dog and every baby, and that doesn't seem right. I think you're definitely right about some people wanting to maximize the number of atheists because they are a disliked minority. And so if you can rope in agnostics, first of all, and other people as atheists, then it it does increase the numbers. But another motive I think some people have is if you characterize it just as lack of belief in God, it's just this psychological fact, you know, It's, it's not like any kind of assertion. It's just, well, I just find myself this way. You no more need to argue for it or defend it than you need to argue for or defend, you know, that you like vanilla ice cream better than chocolate or something like that. Right. You might think that, but I think you'd be mistaken. You still have a view what you're doing if you're saying that you lack belief in God. Having considered the matter is you're really taking up an agnostic position. And that's just as much in need of justification as saying there are no gods or saying that there are gods and perhaps there's this particular one. 
that is a kind of commitment too, isn't it? I think so. Agnosticism should be an intermediate position between theism and atheism. You shouldn't assimilate it to atheism any more than you should assimilate it to theism. Those people who are thinking about atheism of lack of belief in God should also think about the lack of believing that there are no gods and what they want to say about that. If you're saying that all it takes to be an atheist is to lack belief in the proposition that there are gods, Mm -hmm. then it seems that theists should be those who lack belief in the proposition that there are no gods, (laughs) just because there ought to be a parallel between the two positions. And it just doesn't seem right. I really enjoyed how you polite manner, you kind of tore through a bunch of other misconceptions and wrongheaded um, ideas on this subject. So here's one that I've run across personally. Someone will say that she's an agnostic, and then she'll explain that that means that she believes that God exists, but she wouldn't say that she knows that God exists. The original way that agnosticism was characterized was actually in terms of knowledge. So Huxley wanted to say that atheists claim that nobody knows, and maybe more strongly that nobody can know Mm. one way or the other, whether there are gods. That just seems to me to be bringing in a kind of extra consideration about knowledge that's going to apply no matter which position you're taking up. But before I get to that, it's probably useful to go back and think about two different ways that we talk about belief. So sometimes when we talk about belief, we talk about it as though it's a kind of all or nothing Mm -hmm. thing. So either you believe or you disbelieve. But at least amongst philosophers, and perhaps there's a reflection of this in more ordinary conversation, we think about credences. So having the view that there's a certain probability that attaches to a given proposition. What's the credence that you give to there being gods? Well, you might say 100% if you're absolutely sure Mm -hmm. that there are gods. You might say 0% if you're sure that there are no gods. You might say 50% if you're bang in the middle, completely undecided. But you might say 75% if you're inclined towards Mm -hmm. thinking that there are gods. Once you've got that way of talking, It's much less clear where knowledge fits into the picture. You might think that in order to know something, you've got to be certain. And so the only knowers would be at either end of the spectrum. If you accept that package of views, there'll be lots of theists who don't know that theism is true. And there'll be lots of atheists who don't know. Right. Because they wouldn't be anywhere near 100%. Yeah. So that's one kind of consideration that seems relevant here. As with everything, when I'm thinking about these matters, there's kind of there are symmetry considerations here. What's going to be true of atheism is going to be true of theism as well. Agnosticism will turn out to be the position that almost everybody holds if you insist on a kind of, you can only be a theist or an atheist if you're prepared to say, I know it. Mm. Right. Of course, it depends how high you're going to hold the standard for knowledge, too. Yes, that's right. But certainly if you go with this, I was thinking of still using a certainty, a standard Mm -hmm. where knowledge requires certainty. And if you go that way, then most of us, I think, don't suppose that we're always certain that there are gods or we're always certain that there are Mm -hmm. none. 
I mean, there are definitely people on the fence uh, who just cannot commit either to theism or to atheism. I guess if we didn't use the word agnostic for that kind of person, we'd have to come up with a different word. And uh, philosophers have kind of settled on this, I think. I'm not sure when, but since Huxley's time, it's fairly standard to use agnostic for someone who's neither committed to theism nor to atheism, typically either because they think the evidence kind of balances out or they just think there's not really much evidence either way. Because if they thought there was a lot, they would have made up their mind. Right. But it's not that those people are thinking, for example, that you necessarily, that nobody could mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. right? Suppose you're an agnostic and you're undecided about whether there's a God. Presumably, you think that God could know whether there's a God. So you better be undecided on the... <laughs> well, even, even just uh, claiming that no person ever in any circumstance could know either way seems like kind of a gutsy yeah. claim. Like, how is it you would know a thing like that? Presumably, if you're agnostic, if you're really undecided about whether God exists, quite likely you'll be undecided whether God has disclosed to anybody whether God exists mm. or not. And that disclosure might amount to knowledge for the people who've received the disclosure. So it seems more than gutsy, I think. It seems almost inconsistent with your agnosticism to be taking the line that nobody could mm-hmm. know. Yeah, you were really cautious a second ago, and now you're making extremely bold claims about the whole range of possible evidence anybody could have in any circumstance. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> Although sometimes people, yeah, if they have extreme views about knowledge, you know, that I don't know that all knowledge has to be based on sensory experience, and this sensory experience couldn't justify belief in a God or something like mm. that. I don't know. People sometimes make those sweeping claims, but you don't find smart philosophers doing that, though, <laughs> in most cases. When thinking about religion returns, I ask Dr. Oppie if he thinks that atheists and agnostics should be characterized as skeptics. Oftentimes I hear religious people characterizing non-believers, including atheists and agnostics, as, quote, skeptics. Both theists and atheists are characterized in terms of their accepting a particular proposition, right, that there are gods or that there are no gods. I take it that in order to be reasonable in accepting one of those propositions, you've got to have grounds. In some sense, It's hard to see how one of these positions could be more skeptical than the other, right? It seems like that there's a kind of doxastic symmetry Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. Because they're both commitments, they're both belief commitments in a sense. Yeah. And in the book, you point out that, you know, this term skeptic has a long philosophical usage, and I think you define it roughly as people who think that human knowledge is rare or even non-existent, and so... Typically, an atheist, uh, especially an atheist who holds views like you hold, is not at all going to be a skeptic. Often when people talk about skepticism in philosophy, they're thinking about particular things like skepticism about the existence of external Mm -hmm. world, skepticism about the existence of other minds, skepticism about the possibility of making meaningful claims. There's a a bunch of particular topics that people are skeptical Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. about. 
And religion can be one of those. Right. On most matters, I'm not a skeptic. So I'm certainly not a skeptic about the external world. Mm -hmm. Well, reading the book, I assumed you were not a skeptic about a lot of um, results of well-established science, for instance, or even yep. about um, a lot of moral claims like, you know, that stealing is generally wrong or torturing innocent babies just for the fun of it would be morally wrong, things like that. You're not skeptical yeah. about those. So I'm quite happy to accept that killing mm -hmm. is wrong, except like everybody, I think that the actual proposition that people believe is that killing is wrong, except when it isn't. Mm -hmm. And then we disagree about the exceptional mm -hmm. cases. So I'm prepared to allow for sure you can kill in self-defense mm -hmm. in certain circumstances, right? Uh, you can kill to defend your kith and kin in certain circumstances, right? Maybe the circumstances are fairly extreme, like there's no other reasonable option and so on. But there are very few people who think that you can't kill in those circumstances, right? And then there are other cases like, you know, can you kill animals to eat them? I'm a vegetarian. I'm inclined to think you mm -hmm. shouldn't, right? So there's a case of um, killing where my view may not line up with lots of other people's, where I think it's wrong to kill, but other people may not, right? And so on. But the basic principle that you shouldn't kill, except when you can, <laughs> except when you're permitted, is something that just everybody accepts. Except for moral mm -hmm. skeptics, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not one of them. Right. You're not committed to any uh, teachings of any traditional religion, but to call you a skeptic would be highly misleading and probably be misleading for most atheists nowadays. I think so. There have been atheists who were quite skeptical. Mm -hmm. J.L. Mackey. Yeah, but I think that it's quite uncommon now. I think that lots of people who are atheists, it's not just that they tend to buy into science, but they actually have moral and aesthetic and other kinds of views as well that we wouldn't expect that global skeptics would hold. The Dr. Appiah, a couple minutes ago, you said that really, as far as belief is concerned, agnosticism is kind of an in-between. It's kind of in-between theism and atheism. Of course, on the other hand, sometimes people do associate agnosticism and atheism, even in the title of this book. You had a really funny quote here from the famous movie maker Woody Allen. He says, I did not marry the first girl that I fell in love with because there was a tremendous religious conflict at that time. She was an atheist and I was an agnostic. And you, you remark that uh, everybody thinks this is funny. It's an interesting question why it's funny. <laughs> Why do you think it's funny? I don't have any really good theory of humor, but there, there's some clash with kind of our sort of prior view that neither atheism nor agnosticism is a religion, and yet maybe mm. in a certain sense they are. And people who don't have religion and people who do, you might think that there can be really big conflicts between them. But the idea that between two people who don't have religion one of whom's atheist and one of whom's agnostic, there'd be this massive divide, just seems a bit sort of odd. I think when he starts off the sentence, we think he's going to say it's like a Jew and a Christian or Protestant or Catholic. 
And then he comes out with this pair, atheist and agnostic. So part of it is we're expecting a traditional religious commitment. But then part of it is, I think, maybe more so the general public than philosophers, but people do think atheism and agnosticism are really similar. I mean, maybe they're thinking just on the level of practice, you know. If you're an agnostic, well, sometimes people will call it practical atheism, like you're probably not going to pray at least not very much. You're not going to follow all the special food rules. You're probably not going to go to religious services very often and things like that. I mean, you might count both of them as in some sense rejections of religion on a practical level. So then he's he's hitting you with uh, what at least at first glance appear to be really similar views. So we, I think we've murdered this joke thoroughly. It's now, it's now <laughs> completely not funny anymore. <laughs> give a joke to two philosophers and this is what you get. When thinking about religion returns, I asked Dr. Oppie about what to him is a very important idea, what philosophers call naturalism. Dr. Oppie, it seems to me that many educated people will have heard the term naturalism in the context of a style of painting or a style of writing fiction. But for philosophers, naturalism is a worldview, what you call a big picture in this book. So what is naturalism in this philosophical sense and how exactly does it relate to atheism? I guess my view about naturalism may not be the standard view amongst philosophers. So I think of naturalism as a claim about the causal realm. We're kind of familiar with the idea that there are causes and effects. Um, we may think some events cause other events. We may think that sometimes agents cause things, like maybe agents cause certain things to happen. I'm not too fussed about exactly what fits into the causal net, mm -hmm. but I'm going to think that there's a causal reality. And what naturalists think is that that causal reality is entirely natural. The only causal things that there are are things that are proper objects of examination by the natural sciences. That would be one mm -hmm. way to think about it. It's not that necessarily the natural sciences tell us everything that there is to know. It's just that the kinds of things that there are are all things that can be studied by the natural sciences. So the way that I say it, in a kind of short slogan form, is that um, natural reality exhausts causal reality. Mm -hmm. That's what I think the naturalist view is. If that's what naturalism is, then the characterization of naturalism is completely silent on questions about values, for example. Mm -hmm. That's just an independent topic. Mm -hmm. Some people who call themselves naturalists think that there'll be a naturalist story to tell about absolutely everything so that in a certain sense, everything there is to know ultimately is recorded in the natural sciences. 
That's certainly not the way that I'm thinking about it, but there are lots of people who do think about naturalism that way. And so you get um, naturalist ethics and naturalist aesthetics and so on as areas of study in philosophy. But that's just not how I'm thinking about naturalism. Okay, last question was, how does it relate to atheism? If you're a naturalist and you think that there are none but natural causes involving none but natural objects with none but natural properties, then you don't think that there's anything supernatural. So given the earlier account of gods as supernatural beings, if you're a naturalist, you'll be an atheist, kind of by definition. So that's how I think the two views fit together. Atheism itself is just a claim about a particular proposition that there are no gods. Uh, Obviously, that doesn't entail anything about whether there are supernatural things. It just rules out certain kinds of supernatural Mm -hmm. things. So atheism does not entail naturalism, but naturalism, when you fill it out, can become a kind of big picture, a, a kind of worldview, and it will turn out to be atheistic. So by committing to naturalism, you've already thereby committed to atheism, but not vice versa. You could be an atheist, and yet you could believe that there are non-natural causes, like you believe in luck or nirvana or something, but not not any gods. Right. So that would be one example, Uh, would be supposing that you've got a kind of Buddhism where there are no gods, nonetheless there's somehow or other the way that the cycle of reincarnation and the scorekeeping of karma works is supernatural. It's not part of natural reality. It's not something that's amenable to study by the natural sciences. We can't. There isn't any natural science of karma, for example. Mm -hmm. And so that would be non-naturalistic. In the book, you said something that might initially sound surprising. You said agnostics cannot be naturalists. So naturalists are committed to the claim that there are none but natural causes with none, you know, involving none but natural entities with none but natural properties. Mm-hmm. Agnostics can't commit to that claim because they think that it's an open question mm-hmm. whether there are gods, whether there are supernatural agents. So one way of thinking about the agnostic is that they're undecided between various different big pictures. Mm-hmm. It may be that one of the big pictures between which they're undecided is naturalist, but there's got to be some non-naturalist ones as well that are also amongst the ones that they're undecided between. And so they're not naturalists in the way that I'm thinking about naturalism. Mm -hmm. So in the second half of the book, you lay out a case for atheism, considering a whole bunch of different big factors And the way that you make the case for atheism is you make a case for naturalism. That just automatically implies atheism. It seems to me that your case for naturalism depends crucially on the idea of theoretical simplicity. Can you explain how that works? The question about how you choose between competing theories is one that's been thought about quite a lot, primarily in philosophy of science. And I'm drawing on background in philosophy of science Mm -hmm. here. When you're comparing two theories, so you've got a couple of theories and there's some domain of data and we're comparing the two theories on the data, there are two relevant considerations. One consideration is about what the theories commit you to. Does one theory commit you to more kinds of 
things, more kinds of properties, more primitive notions, more primitive principles and so on than the other one mm -hmm. does. So it's sort of the extent of the theoretical commitments. And then the other question is, so how much of the data is explained by each of the theories? And when you're assessing the theories, sort of in general, what you want to know is, so which one makes the better trade-off between minimising its commitments and maximising its explanation of the mm -hmm. data? This kind of idea can be formalised. So some people think, for example, that you can turn the decision process into a mathematical algorithm uh, using Bayes' theorem. Mm -hmm. So basically, there's this idea that you have prior probabilities, and they're more or less a measure of the extent of the commitments of the theory. And then you have a posterior probability that you get from the prior probability by conditionalizing on the evidence, the data. Right. And then you, you deploy all the machinery of probability theory, and it cranks out values for you. The answer, which, one, which one's the more probable mm -hmm. theory? Now, I'm, for various reasons, I'm skeptical about actually being able to do that in practice. Mm -hmm. In particular, there are problems about arriving at numbers for prior probabilities, except in special sure. cases, mm -hmm. right? So, because often the question here really is just comparative. And if one theory is, the commitments of one theory are a subset of the commitments of another theory, then it's just automatically, it's just obvious that it's committed to less. Mm -hmm. So, there'll be some cases where the Bayesian machinery will give you answers without the numbers, right? Because, so here's, here's the kind of case. Suppose that we've got two theories. One of them commits you to less and it explains everything. It at least explains everything that the other theory does. Well, then that theory, the one that's committed to less and explains at least as much, has got to be the better theory. There are two relevant considerations, mm -hmm. call them simplicity and depth of explanation, and the, th the one theory trumped, did better on both considerations, so it must be the better mm -hmm. theory. So that's the style of reasoning that I'm using in the, the third and fourth parts of the book. Yeah, and it's a style that's consistent with common sense reasoning like you see police officers or juries do, but it's particularly employed the way you just described it in science and any of the sciences, right? Yeah. So yeah, there's nothing really controversial about that insofar as it goes. Okay, so how is simplicity important to the case for naturalism then? One way of thinking about the naturalist position is, as far as the causal domain goes, there's the natural stuff and there's nothing else. That's all there is. Mm -hmm. If you consider a competing view that adds in some supernatural stuff, it's not going to disagree with the naturalist about what the natural stuff is. Uh, at least, let, let me say that first, and then we can come back and worry about whether that's exactly okay. right. So basically, there's the natural world, and it's not very controversial what's in the natural world across its history. Um, there are kind of best answers to a whole range of questions that we get from sciences, but there are other best answers that we get just out of our everyday experience, but that we all agree on. So what the naturalist is committed to is going to be nothing other than what everybody's committed to, right? So it's going to turn out to be the view with the least commitments. Out of the sensible views. Yeah, out of all the sensible views, yeah. It's going to be the one that's got the least commitments. So the question is going to be, 
when we come down to the question about God, since God's obviously an extra commitment, God's not one of the natural mm-hmm. things, what is there that we can explain by appealing to God that the naturalist can't explain? Or what's going to be better explained by postulating mm-hmm. God than by just sticking with the naturalist picture? And the case that I make, so the hypothesis that I consider and suggest reasons why you might find it attractive is that there are no cases, right? And so that would be a way of arguing then for naturalism over theism, but it's a way, generically, it's a way of arguing for naturalism over any non-naturalist position. I think you could put it this way. You're saying that because the sensible uh, rival views would include everything that naturalism includes, and yet more, there's more cost to the theory or to the explanation and uh, if there's going to be more costs, that extra cost has to be justified by greater profit at the end. And you're saying, well, actually, if we can explain everything just as well with naturalism as with these rival views, and there is no extra payoff, it's not worth it. So we should stick with the simpler view. Right. So that's an okay way to put it. So what I'm doing in this part of the book is addressing the question, why might you think that naturalism is the best worldview to adopt? And in the background, the thought is, why might you be an atheist? Well, you might be an atheist because you're a naturalist and you think that naturalism is just kind of the best view. I'm not defending that line of thought in the book. I'm not saying this is compulsory or anything like that. I'm just saying, here's why you might find naturalism attractive. Here's a view that you might defend. I mean, it seems to me that what you consider the sensible rivals are ones that, for lack of a better term, I would call common sense worldviews. So, you know, physical objects are real and we can know about them and other persons are real and we can know sometimes what other people are thinking and doing and so on. These are kinds of views where if the person you're arguing with was, say, a Jew or a Christian or a Muslim, they're probably completely on board with this sort of view. But There will be other views like some Mahayana Buddhists or Advaita Vedanta Hindus where, you know, Advaita Vedanta famously says that the cosmos is an illusion caused by eternal ignorance. They don't think there is knowledge of these things. Uh, So then you, but you're you're saying, well, I'm not going to take a crack at those views here, I guess, right? You're locking horns with what I guess in the West are more common views. I'm quite prepared to take a crack at them too. So here's how I would see the argument in that case. Suppose you think that there's no external world. There's a course of experience that you're undergoing. You can't deny that it's as if there's an external world. I don't know. We need a vocabulary for it. So there are all these, there are all these seemings, right? Perceptual seemings that you're undergoing. Now, One view you can have is that each of these is just an appearance from nowhere. It has no cause, right? That's a super expensive view, Mm -hmm. right? If you're saying that everything's illusion and you're not prepared to suppose that there's any causes, then you've got just about the worst view that it's possible to have insofar as we're thinking about the explanation of the course of seemings that comes to you because you have to treat each of them as a kind of original miracle, right? If you're thinking it, if you're thinking it has no cause, they have one cause for all of them. I think it's 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 uh, right. it's Maya. It's eternal ignorance. That doesn't differentially explain why, if you look in this direction, you see a dog, and when you look over there, you see a tree. 
True. and so on. There's there's more stuff that has to be explained here, comparative stuff. And we've been given no explanation, right? So there's a whole lot of primitives, right? It's just primitive that it seems to be a dog over there. And it's just primitive that it seems to be a tree there and so on. Mm. Right? That still makes this about as expensive as a view can be. Mm-hmm. Whereas naturalists will have a causal story, partly having to do with the operation of the brain and photons impacting on your retina and so on and so on, that will simplify. Overall, the, the naturalist picture is going, to be much more, is going to be much simpler than that. It's sort of infinitely many independent, unexplained mm-hmm. things kind of a view. So I do think that the methodology will apply to other views as well as to, that is, will apply to views Skeptical views, for example, or idealist views mm-hmm. to take two kinds of contrasting positions. In the book, I don't discuss that. I just really think about a kind of generic theistic alternative to naturalism. Mm-hmm. But I think that the methodology will give you a reason to prefer naturalism to a whole lot of what you might think of as more outlier views as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a way of looking for what's overall the best explanation, and it seems to me that we all apply it, even kind of just naturally. We break out this kind of critical thinking in all sorts of limited spheres, and you're just saying, well, can't we do this on a, on a grander level? Course, yeah, that seems like, yeah. Of course, I make it sound easy when you put it that way. <laughs> well, except as I point out, it's very hard to do because yes. there are so many considerations to take into account and some of the judgments are rather uncertain. Yeah. So there's ever so many ways where you might be skeptical. So you end up saying, well, we can just agree to disagree about which is the better view. Mm-hmm. We may both have a kind of gut feeling about it, but unless you know, we could really make watertight this argument by cases so that we just had to agree how each case was assessed, it would leave plenty of room for just, oh, well, you know, our judgments differ, so we disagree as the kind of outcome. When thinking about religion returns, how Dr. Oppie tries to show that naturalism can explain everything that needs explaining. And we also discuss the topic of Religious experiences. So what you do is you go through seven different kind of subject matters that would maybe be relevant to deciding whether or not you're going to be an atheist. And uh, then you, you sketch how a naturalist would approach these topics. So their causation design, like, is there, you know, does the universe appear to be designed or do, do animals' bodies appear to be designed? How do human minds and mentality fit into a physical world? And that's something that philosophers have expended oceans of ink on in the last 70 years or so. Um, Then you discuss anomaly, alleged miracles and reports of miracles, religious experiences, claims that there are scriptures and claims of divination, like being able to predict the future. 
It strikes me that naturalistic philosophers in recent times have really hunkered down on the first three topics, causation, design, and mind. It's more traditional to be dismissive, I think, of the last four, anomaly, religious experience, scripture, and divination. Religious experience seems like a particularly difficult one to judge. So in your view, is there a way that we can sort of sweep religious experiences from the field and and just kind of class them all together and say, well, we don't really need to take that all that seriously or think that it's some kind of powerful testimonial evidence? I don't think there's any way of just sweeping it from the field. I mean, the right approach is to think about all the different kinds of experiences that get called religious experiences, Mm -hmm. and then to think about what you want to say about each of those kinds of experiences. And there are people, so William James is a famous example of somebody who spent a lot of time cataloguing kinds of religious experiences. There's a lot of variety in there, and there are interestingly different questions to ask about, you know, different kinds of religious experiences. So... Some religious experience is generated by religious practice. Mm -hmm. Some of it is responses to the world that are mediated by religious belief in certain kinds of ways. So, for example, the kind of example that I'm thinking about there might be looking at the night sky and just having the sense that God made it or doing something wrong and thinking, um, you know, God saw me do that and I feel ashamed or whatever. And you might think of those as religious experiences. The first kind I was thinking perhaps about singing in church and the kind of experience that you get there, which you might think of as having some kind of evidential value for you, just as with the second kind of case. Mm -hmm. Some people have visions, some people have dreams. The contents of those things might be taken to be religious by some people. Mm-hmm. There are also mystical experiences of various kinds. And amongst these, there might be things like um, experiences of being possessed by the divine, experiences of fear or awe, you know, fear and trembling, or compulsion or some sense of there being a a greater agency that you're in the presence of. There can also be experiences where you kind of have this experience that everything is one, a sense of tranquility, a sense of being sort of at home in the universe or something like that. There are certain kinds of experiences that are alleged to go along with Things like enlightenment and rebirth, salvation, as it's said to be in various of the world's religions, and so on. So there's lots of stuff there to consider. You you can't just bundle all of that up into one thing and say, well, you know, we shouldn't, there's nothing here to think about. Mm -hmm. Right. But there are obviously different things to say about the different cases. So in the cases where a judgment's made on the basis of prior belief, right? So, you know, you look at the sky and you have this sense that it's made by God. It's not clear what the evidential value of that is going to be from the point of view of a naturalist because one way of explaining the experience is in terms of the prior beliefs. Um, and so that makes it hard for the experience to then also be claimed to have some evidential value. Mm-hmm. With other cases, there are very different things to say. So, say the sense of oneness with the world, 
is something that people with all kinds of different beliefs, including naturalists, sometimes have. Mm -hmm. And given the wide variation in the religious beliefs, naturalists are going to think it's not very plausible that the having of that experience is going to have some kind of religious explanation. It seems much more plausible that there's going to be some kind of explanation that has something to do with our evolutionary history and something to do with the current constitution of our brains on the basis of that evolutionary history. And it will be universal, right, because these kinds of experiences are reported in all cultures, right? It's not something to do with the particular religious history of particular cultures. It's something that's much more universal to humanity. And so naturalists are going to think that there's going to be a kind of naturalistic explanation here that's going to look better than whatever piecemeal explanations might be given by particular religions. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's some of the considerations that would come up in a discussion of religious experience from a kind of naturalistic standpoint. Yeah, the first stage is to classify, and that's actually very involved. Um, There are a few philosophers that have uh, written a lot on this topic. I'll probably put some links on the blog post for this episode. Again, it's just the best explanation, right, in terms of simplicity, uh, explanatory scope, explanatory depth, consistency with other things that we know. And uh, there's a bunch of other ways to judge theories, yeah. but you're, you're just saying it's going to have to be that same sort of thing. And it may be that while applying this methodology in a kind of rigorous and thoughtful way, that we'll arrive at different conclusions. That's possible mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what makes philosophy so hard. <laughs> <laughs> True. This is one of the interesting things about this book, Dr. Oppie, even though you're an atheist, you don't really give much clue whether or not you're very firm in that or whether you're different on different days of the month. Uh, but anyway, you're, you're committed to atheism, that's clear, and, and it's because you're committed to naturalism. What's interesting is you, you end the book by sketching out a case that agnosticism should be preferred to atheism. You're at least sympathetic to the case in the sense that you could, you could understand why this might seem compelling to some people. Look, when experts, or the closest we've got to experts, and I have in mind here professional philosophers like you, when people like that disagree, they can't even come to any consensus about causation or apparent design or anomalies or the place of mind in the physical world. Then what's an ordinary person supposed to do other than just suspend judgment? I'm a pretty convinced naturalist. When I think about the evidence for myself, the judgment that I arrive at is that it really looks to me as though naturalism is the best position. Mm -hmm. But I'm also well aware of the fact that people that I respect enormously, people who are better philosophers than I am, arrive at different conclusions from the one that I arrive at. And so I'm sure that reasonable people can weigh up all of the relevant considerations and arrive at a different point of view. And so when I wrote the thing about agnosticism, I was just explaining from my perspective one way in which it seemed to me entirely possible that a sensible person could end up being an agnostic Mm -hmm. rather than an atheist. And I could certainly have written, but it's not in the job description for the book, I could have written another account pointing out how you could end up being a theist. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. 
applying the same methodology. On the question about what's an ordinary person to do, there are some areas where experts agree, mm-hmm. right? So sciences are typically like this. There's a whole lot of stuff in every science where there's just uniform agreement amongst the scientists about what the answers are. And if you're an ordinary person, you should believe what they say, right? If you want to disagree with them, you know, on the stuff where they just all agree, you better go away and do some careful study and become an expert yourself before you've got any entitlement to disagree. Of course, science is a growing concerns. There's a whole lot of stuff in every science that's controversial where the experts disagree with one another. There, if you're not an expert, it seems to me in that case, the right thing to do is probably to suspend judgment. After all, these are questions where the scientists most likely will eventually work things out and then the rest of us will know what to think or if we want to disagree with them, we know what we have to do. We have to go and do the science and then we have to argue with them and convince them that they're wrong. Mm -hmm. One way of thinking about it is that what characterises philosophy is that there is no expert agreement on claims, nor even expert agreement on methods for resolving claims. That's kind of what's distinctive of philosophy. Mm -hmm. So philosophers nonetheless hold opinions. It's unclear, given the state of expert opinion, why ordinary people shouldn't follow the example of philosophers and hold opinions. After all, whatever opinion you pick, you can find a bunch of expert philosophers who defend that view. I shouldn't have said pick, right, whichever view you hold, because I'm not supposing that this is a matter of choice, really. But there's nothing wrong, given that the philosophers continue to hold views, even though they know that they disagree with one another. There's really nothing wrong with ordinary people continuing to hold views either. That's my view. When thinking about religion returns... I asked Dr. Oppie about his discussions of alleged miracles in this book. discuss miracles two different times in this book. One is in the context of sketching the case for atheism as opposed to theism. And then you return to the topic of miracles in discussing a case for agnosticism as against atheism. And when you talk about miracles in the theism versus atheism part, you focus on miracle reports and With miracle reports, there's always some distance in time and space, and uh, maybe these people are a little weird or they're uneducated, and these things very often strike us as bizarre and, and unlikely to start with. When you return to miracles later in the book, you say, well, what if you have one of these experiences? And then it kind of gets more interesting in a sense. And, uh, You say, suppose you're walking across a field alone and you hear a voice telling you to become a Rastafarian. I assume with a Jamaican accent. Yeah, yeah, Uh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And of course, you know, you'd have to ask yourself, am I hallucinating? But I mean, could there be a case where uh, you might take that seriously? I was wondering if you could read this interesting little paragraph that you have after giving that you should become a Rastafarian example. 
It's not uncommon for non-believers to be asked what it would take to convince them to adopt particular religious beliefs. While it's hard to know what to say in response to this question, other than to say that those who already believe are likely better placed to answer it, drawing upon their own experience, it happens not infrequently that non-believers suggest some variant of the example that I've been discussing, that is the Rastafarian example. One way to strengthen the example is to have multitudes undergo the same experience at the same time, rather than have me walking alone in a field, make it that I'm with a large group who are walking together in the field and let the voice boom down from the sky so that trickery on the part of some members of the group is plainly ruled out. Perhaps it's plausible to suppose that this kind of case would provide reason to suspend judgment on the question whether there are gods or even to believe that there are gods for those who are part of the group. What I thought was interesting about that was, in part, your comment that, well, maybe people who have changed their minds would be the people to ask. It strikes me that people sometimes change their minds and they don't hold out for such a kind of bulletproof scenario like that. In other words, they, they have experiences that are less striking and experiences which an outsider would find easier to dismiss, yet it's enough for them to, to change I heard an interview recently with a, a guy that was raised uh, as an atheist in France, a very smart guy, uh, degrees in computer science and so on. And he began to investigate Christianity. Eventually, if I remember the story straight, he had done something horrible. He didn't say what it was, but I assume it was worse than kicking a puppy. Okay, He had done something that he was really ashamed of and he just found himself having the belief that not only was he a wrongdoer, but that he was this sinner that needed forgiveness. And then he visited this church and he, he was going to walk out as soon as the service was over. And he felt like something was kind of stopping him. I wonder if it's not human nature to settle for less bulletproof evidence than that when it's your own case. Sure. So if you think about the kind of trajectories that you're talking about, perhaps it's something that could happen to any naturalist that they could end up going down a trajectory like that and it wouldn't take something like Hume's voice in the sky. And I don't think I want to disagree with what you said just because, I mean, there was the parenthetical bit that I did read out, you know, that the kind of the best answer, what would it take, is to look at what it actually has taken for people to make the, the journey from one position Mm-hmm. to another and i think i think that's right or at least seemingly sensible sane even smart people yeah. yeah sure yeah i mean it could be like imagine that you're talking to i don't know your 12 year old daughter and she has these ideas about what it would take to convince her that certain man is is mr right for her maybe she thinks she'll just be all tingly and excited all the time or something and I mean, she really doesn't know what she's talking about, you know, like when she actually makes the deal, maybe she dated the guy for five years and all the tingles are long gone. It's not just the experience, but the kind of evidence that she would actually demand and uh, accept actually turned out to be kind of less spectacular. Yeah, that sounds entirely plausible. Yeah. See, this is why this is a very philosophical book. <laughs> if this was a book written by new atheists, you wouldn't have these kinds of two-sided <laughs> views of things. And um, I really appreciate that about the book. It's not just a smart book. 
it shows a real interest in the truth and real kind of respect for reason in that you're very careful about what arguments you make and you're very careful to acknowledge the limits of the arguments. I think it's really valuable for that reason. The last thing that you said about acknowledging the limits of the arguments is quite important to me. How so? Um, because of considerations about disagreement, so looking around and seeing who believes what amongst philosophers, it's obvious that there's a kind of distribution of serious, thoughtful people right across the, think of it as a, the line that goes from the kind of 100% belief that there are gods to the 100% belief that there are no gods. Mm -hmm. There's a distribution right across there of well-informed, thoughtful, smart people. So I think you can be pretty sure that whatever arguments you can come up with are going to have, that for either the claim that there are gods or the claim that there are no gods, are going to have pretty serious limitations just because of the facts about the distribution mm -hmm. of belief. And I know not everybody sees it that way, but I've seen it like that pretty much from the beginning of my career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at the same time, even though you're very cautious about the prospects of proving things, coming up with a knockdown argument that really should force people's agreement, at the same time, you don't just therefore surrender all your views. I mean, you still are going to confess how things seem to you. And, you know, accept the arguments that seem like powerful arguments to you. There's still a commitment to common sense there in thinking that you don't have to suspend judgment across the whole board. Right. This also relates to the sort of recent discussions in the epistemology of disagreement. There are people, famously Richard Feldman wrote a paper where he essentially said that philosophers should suspend judgment about everything once they mm -hmm. find out about the facts of disagreement. They should all just converge to the middle ground. Obviously, I don't agree with him about that. I think that it's perfectly fine for people to stay where they are, even recognising the disagreements mm -hmm. between, let's call them philosophical experts, just the, the disagreements amongst the professional mm -hmm. philosophers. That's a substantive commitment mm -hmm. and it might be quite tricky to argue for it to argue for the hold fast position yeah. not just yeah. collapse yeah. across the board yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah dr oppie thanks for talking with us thanks very much it was a pleasure In my own work, I distinguish between the looser concept of a deity and the more specific concept of a god, the sort of god that we find in any monotheistic religion. With this distinction, we can say that most traditional Buddhists are atheists, but most of them are not a-deists. Still, I think Dr. Oppie's fourfold scheme neatly sorts people when it comes to their stance on the question of deities. Where do you fit into that classification? If I were to say that there's at least one deity, what would be your honest reaction? Would you say that it's true? Then you'd be what Dr. Oppie calls a theist. Would you say that it's false? If so, you'd be what he calls an atheist. If you can't commit either way, 
then you're an agnostic. Probably by now, you're not what he calls an innocent. So that just leaves you with three options, theist, atheist, or agnostic. And if there's significant relevant evidence, it's not like we should just pick one. None of us wants to be mistaken about important matters. As Dr. Oppie sees it, the evidence is on the side of atheism. Is he right? What do you say? This has been Thinking About Religion. I'm Dale Tuggy. Thanks for listening.